This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Chris Wallace. Chris is an academic, an author and a biographer, and she joined me to talk about her latest book, Political Lives, Australian Prime Ministers and Their Biographers. Chris tells us about Australian political history through her account of the many Prime Ministers across history and their biographies, as well as their contemporary biographers. She examines their motivations and relationships on both sides. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome back onto the show Professor Chris Wallace. Chris has been a regular on this show and we're not going to do our usual federal politics catch-up, but we are still talking about federal politics in a way. We're talking about Chris's new book, which is out now. It's called Political Lives, Australian Prime Ministers and Their Biographers. Uh, it's from UNSW Press or New South Books. And uh, Chris, I can tell, has spent numerous hours, days, weeks, months and years working on this book uh, and we were just talking off air about footnotes because that's how we spend our days is obsessing about research and archives. And you can tell from this book that Chris has spent a very long time in a whole range of archives, especially the National Library of Australia, looking through some very interesting manuscript boxes. And she even got a hat tip from Judith Brett the other day in Inside Story uh, to say well done for finding a box I didn't even find. So I just thought, wow, high praise. So I welcome onto the show Chris Wallace and a big congratulations to you, Chris, on this book for such a huge feat of research for to start. Thanks, Amy. Yes, it was a bit of a climbing Mount Everest uh, effort. And just on Judith Breath, Brett, mm. wow, what a class act she is. Uh, excellent scholar and so generous to colleagues. You know, she didn't have mm. to to say that about, you know, me finding a bit more in those Menzies papers and so forth than she did. I mean, she is really a model for how to do uh, the academic life in a good and generous way and, um, you know, she's got great karma coming back at her. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I thought, wow, that's so impressive because uh, not everyone would do that. Certainly, you know, history can be competitive at times. Well, on, on the other side of the slate, I am incredibly jealous of her book, The Enigmatic Mr. Deacon. Deacon, mm. You'll recall That's the cover photo. Yeah. You'll recall the cover photo. It's of Deacon in his bathers, you know, halfway down his thighs at, I think, Point Lonsdale. And yes. It's my, one of my favourite pictures of any Prime Minister ever, and I was so jealous in a good way, Amy, um, <laughs> that it was on the cover of her terrific biography of Deacon, The Enigmatic Mr. Deacon, a terrific read. But, boy, that picture, I love it. Oh, I love it too. And I also love uh, Alfred Deacon's old house in Point Lonsdale, Ballara, uh, because it's actually come up in the news recently as being under threat from development, oh, no. which is I, shocking. I too have found that house and stood out the front and just gazed Stunning. at it. Um, gee, Victorian government, Dan Andrews, save Deacon's house at Point Lonsdale. That's really important. Yeah. That could be a great writer's retreat, actually. Oh, it could be so many things. Uh, yeah. Like I, I was overwhelmed by it because it did seem to draw on kind of Japanese architecture but modernist architecture. It was like so many different influences. It's such a unique structure that I'd just be so disappointed if it was subdivided and, and 
you know, basically destroyed because that's what's been happening in the whole area down on the Ballerine is a million subdivisions and lots of townhouses and units, which don't get me started. Yeah, don't get me that. started either. I'm a long-time regular multi-times-a-year Barwon Heads visitor, so oh, I'm with well, you uh, totally. And, look, I'm, I'm imagining it now. The Andrews government buys Deacon's old Point Lonsdale house and gives it to the Wheeler Centre to administer as a writer's retreat. Yeah, I think we how need about, to... How about for political biographers? That would be good. Yes. I think we need to plant this in the mind of um, Dan Andrews's wife, who is so dedicated to writers and that writing. That is a great idea. And you know she, why? She yeah. herself is an historian. That's a oh, brilliant, oh. brilliant thought. See, don't worry, everyone. We've just sorted out a big world problem, so we can now get on to Chris's book. I'm so glad we had this chat, Chris, um, in front of thousands of people. Now, let's talk about your book because um, the opening chapter or introduction, I guess you could say, where you take us through your own personal experience really does set up this book perfectly. And it's something that's quite interesting to me because – uh, I wasn't aware just how much kind of, I don't know, speculation there was around your decision to, you know, spike or can your biography of Julia Gillard. And I hoped that you could take us through that story yourself in your own words with us now um, and how that really led you to this book and this idea. Well, winding back through time, we need that kind of do-do-do-do going back in time music now, back to when Julia Gillard was Deputy Prime Minister in the Rudd government. Uh, Gillard was a really formidably good Deputy Prime Minister in Parliament. Uh, She used to wear these snappy black suits and white shirts and and really just command uh, command the Parliament when she, she went into bat in question time. It was really impressive. And I decided watching this that we we really needed a good critical biography of of this woman who did look like the one to become Australia's former ALP National Secretary on the line there. I'll just turn that phone off. I thought we really do need a biography of, of Gillard. She's so obviously going to become the first Australian female Prime Minister. Uh, Jacqueline Kent was, of course, working on a book at the same time. Hers was authorised um, Mine was not going to be authorised. I I just can't bring myself to do that kind of biography. Um, That Mm. said, Jacqueline Kent's book turned out to be very, very good. So I get a publishing contract. I start work. And between that moment and the time the book was about to come out, the whole of Australian politics got turned on its head. Uh, Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister went to the Copenhagen Climate Summit at the end of 2009 He expected to kind of seize the world's leaders and and excite them and invoke in them a fervent desire to make a really big climate deal. That didn't happen. He came back to Australia and from about early January 2010, he was very much a frozen prime minister behind the scenes, uh, immobile, shattered by the surprising lack of success at Copenhagen. Of course, you know, most other people had a more realistic view of what was likely to happen at that conference and weren't surprised. Uh, In Australia, the the fervour for real climate action was high and many people were advising Kevin Rudd to call an election, capitalise on that pro-strong climate policy sentiment, get a bigger majority, try and get control of the Senate and get some really strong legislation through. But instead... 
Kevin Rund, Rudd remained essentially frozen. And what happened over ensuing months is Labor's polling started to slip, then it got really bad, and then backbenchers started getting really nervous and, in the end, panicked. It was a bit bit like a herd of animals having a you know that ripple of fear going through them and, mm. and it becoming contagious. Then Bill Shorten, the faction boss, got involved, and before you knew it, there was a leadership crisis uh, Kevin Rudd had been dislodged by Julie Gillard, who became Prime Minister. And from that point on, we had the extraordinary spectac- spectacle um, with some, you know, interesting, happier moments in between. But mostly from that point on, Julia Gillard was caught in this terrible pincer movement uh, between the Rudd allies within caucus gunning for her and Tony Abbott the Liberal opposition leader, doing the same from the opposition benches. And Gillard was caught in this terrible, terrible pincer movement by enemies from within and without. Uh, And, of course, the story was widely sold that she'd somehow knifed um, Rudd. This this was not, not in fact, the case. It's more like a rotten branch fell from a tree and, you know, the Prime Ministership really fell into her lap. Labor tribal elders at the time, including Gillard, did not want a change in the prime ministership at that point. They were hoping to get another election win out of uh, Rudd and his leadership before any thought of that was given. So the situation was very unhappy, quite fevered, uh, redolent with the most extraordinary misogyny. You'll you'll recall, Amy, how bad it was. And by the time the book was about to be published, I was warned by my publisher's publicity director that you know, this is this is coming into a real feeding frenzy. We're probably going to have to book the press club for the launch because everyone just wants to dive on it. And there was this terrible growing feeling in me that this book, which, you know, I'd written biographies before. I was an experienced biographer. You know, I never pull my punches, but I'm always thoughtful to present things in a nuanced way. After all, you know, human beings, there's no such thing as a perfect one or a totally bad one. We're all, you know, a mix of both. And I could suddenly see that this book, this honest bit of intellectual labour, uh, stood to be seized by others and used as a weapon for their own ends, quite apart from and independent of my views and feelings as a biographer. And I just made the decision that I was not up for my book, my honest intellectual labour, to be misused politically in this way to destabilise the Gillard government further. So I emailed my publisher and, you know, with quite some emotion said I was spiking the book and I was returning the advance. Yeah, well, it's a big decision to make for anyone, but especially at that time where you say, you know, it could be used or really I think the thing that came across to me the most was people would just pick it apart for the juicy bits, you know, like how can we weaponize this? How can we, you know, grab an exclusive report it um, ad nauseum that Julia Gillard isn't perfect. Um, and as you say, when you did research into her while she was deputy prime minister, you know, there were comments just about it, like there would be about any politician about her perhaps weaknesses and her strengths um, and, you know, you say that one off-the-record comment of a junior female minister stuck in your mind, um, that Gillard was supportive once she had broken you to her will and you fell into line, but she wasn't supportive until then. 
which you say contrasted with the approach that Jenny Macklin and others had tried to facilitate for, you know, women entering labour and and hoping to have a, a far more inclusive environment. So obviously any biography is going to have these juicy tidbits, uh, just like we saw with Nikki Sava's book uh, more recently, but yours would have been, I'm assuming, quite different from Nikki's. So, you know, how did you then decide, okay, this warrants an entire almost survey of every Australian Prime Minister and their relationship with their biographer? Well, I wondered, had any biographer before me been in the same situation? You know, what what's going on in that biographer-subject relationship? Uh, what's the intention of the biographer? Were they vulnerable to, as it turned out I was, to third parties seizing on their biography and using it uh, as a political weapon against the subject. So to answer that question, I looked at all of the biographies written in the lead-up to or during the terms of office of every Australian 20th century Prime Minister, um, which was quite a fascinating task. Mm. Uh, People often think thought I was looking at biographies generally. No, no. Once a, politi- once a prime minister had left office, not interested, because those biographies could not affect their career trajectory. I was interested in the ones that could have, you know, as mine could have with Gillard, uh, actually affected her for good or ill and, you know, in the extreme maybe cost of the prime ministership. In, I've got to underline, Amy, that the, the things in there that might have been seized on were not earth-shattering and in a mm. normal environment would have been considered interesting and nuanced matters for consideration and discussion. But in that fevered atmosphere of people going absolutely nuts and just going for Gillard in the most extraordinary and terrible way, uh, they would have been read and misused quite in quite a different way. Can I just read you the last paragraph of my book? Yes, please. You know, you're a writer too and... Yep. When we do interviews, we, you know, we go blah, blah, blah. But when we're sitting and writing, we actually think carefully. You know, every word matters. Mm. And and at the end of the 100,000 words of this book, this is my last paragraph. Reputation is political capital. Biographers are amongst those who coin it and who can destroy it, as well as providing the material for others to do the same for their own multifarious reasons. None of the biographers in Australia's first century of national politics faced the potential frenzy I faced with the Gillard Project early in its second century. Pressing on would have constituted a political intervention of an unintended kind. Some will say not pressing on itself constituted a kind of political intervention, to which I would respond by asking whether contemporary political biography demands a variation on the Hippocratic Oath First, do no harm, unless it's deserved and intentional. Mm. And I think there are cases, you know, Donald Trump is a case where, as a biographer in the lead-up to the 2016 election, presidential election in the US, I think a, a, you know, full-blooded Trump biography would have been really useful to inform voters better about who and what they're actually voting for. So sometimes you do want to deliberately do that but normally you don't so I wasn't up for my book being misused by others for their own political purposes against Gillard. Indeed well there are these ethical and moral considerations which you've taken 
on board and considered, but perhaps others may or may not to differing extents. And that's part of this discussion in the book. Um, There are a whole range of considerations that biographers have when they're deciding to take on um, a biography of a certain politician, and we will talk about that. But to close out on your Julia Gillard kind of chapter, um, does that mean that this is going to be an unpublished manuscript that we find in uh, Chris Wallace's box at the National Library, uh, you know, 100 years from now? Or perhaps would you one day consider changing it and publishing it? I've I've thought a lot about that. And, uh, of course, writers never throw out manuscripts, do we? You never know when you're going to need them. But I think if I I went back to this project, I'd do it slightly differently. Um, One of my research questions when I was writing the Gillard book was why was it that Gillard, of all the really talented women that came in in that class of 98 into the federal caucus, why was it Gillard, not, say, Tanya Plibersek, who's incredibly intelligent, broad policy experience in government before becoming a a, a politician? Why wasn't it Nicola Roxon, came first in a law school class at Melbourne Uni? Why was it Gillard rather than them who made it through the pack first to become the first woman prime minister. So I think now if I did it, I'd go, I'd do a collective biography of the women in the class of 98 and follow their trajectories and, mm. and really try to get to grips with the why question there. Cause I think it's an interesting and actually important question. Yeah. Well, that's perfect. I look forward to that book <laughs> whenever it comes out, Chris. It sounds like a lot of work too, but I am also curious about that because Nicola Roxon was a huge uh, player back in the day as Attorney General and did some really big reforms and Tanya Plibersek obviously is still around. Uh, so I am also curious. Let's remember our history. The reason Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister was because Julia Gillard put her numbers behind him to clear Kim Beasley out of the way. Otherwise, Kevin Rudd would have never been able to to do that, and Kim mm. Beasley would have gone to the election and could well have become Prime Minister. And I, I think the the working thesis I've got about why Gillard rather than Plibersek or Roxon, and we ought to add the word yet, because, of course, Tanya Plibersek is a senior Albanese government cabinet minister. She's still in the mm. game. Um, I think the reason why it was Gillard is, unlike the other women in caucus who were very, you know, informed by a sense of feminist solidarity, Gillard was really like an old-fashioned faction boss. She tended to hang out with the men in cardigans and, Mm -hmm. you know, the kind of fellow faction boss types building her numbers rather than doing the sisterhood thing in caucus. And so she built her numbers in a way that made her the biggest parcel of votes outside the Beasley camp in the caucus, which gave her independent power. Now, she knew she could never become... Prime Minister or leader of the Labor Party directly after Kim Beasley, you know, to go from a a right faction man to a left faction woman in one leap was probably a bit of a stretch in that specific historical moment. But, you know, her calculation was, well, if I, well, I'm I'm surmising here, this is an untested thesis, so if I go ahead with that particular variation on my book, I'll be able to find out for sure. But the the calculation may well have been, uh, I can't do it, but I can put my numbers behind Kevin Rudd and he can open mm. the path and that is, in fact, exactly what happened. Though the, the slur that she somehow violently did Rudd in in the middle of 2010 
is not only historically untrue, it's very unfair to Gillard. And it's remarkable how small a number of people actually know the accurate story. And it's in the preface of this book, I briefly sketch it out just for the record because I think it's important it be on the record so people really mm. know what happened. Yeah, well, Bill Shorten played a significant role. Yes, well, loves a plot. Yes. <laughs> now, Chris, let's talk about some of these case studies that you've got because you, you literally do talk about all of Australia's prime ministers. Uh, and what is quite enjoyable at the beginning of the book is the chapter on absent fathers because you talk about uh, Australia's kind of biographical neglect of the first half a dozen prime ministers and you say that it's quite striking just how neglectful it is. And obviously with your kind of criteria, you were looking at people who were doing biographies either before these politicians became prime minister or during their prime ministership. And at times you even include ones that might've happened directly after um, they left office if they have a particular message or um, story to tell about biography. Uh, but in particular, you do highlight the fact that political biography as a genre or a kind of thing, a phenomenon, was not really there right at the beginning at Federation time. No, it's a, a real contrast to, to US political culture where, uh, for example, presidential campaign biographies really featured from the beginning of US democracy. Uh, we seem to take our cult political culture generally and our biographical culture, specifically in relation to politics, very much from the Brits, which is, I guess, a little unsurprising. Uh, in common with those early 20th century British prime ministers, there was almost nothing written at the time of our first half dozen prime ministers. And Amy, who can ever even remember their name, <laughs> right? So it's a great yeah. it's a great trivia night question. Name Australia's first six prime ministers in order. Um, hard work. It is hard so, work. So it was a real kind of act of political recovery to go back and look at that, and it, it was really it uncovered some poignant things. For example, um, Yes No Reid, the New South Wales Premier Reid, who did get elected to federal parliament, did become prime minister, was overweight, did look a bit like a war us. He had one of those gigantic moustaches, uh, was slurred by people like Deacon behind the scenes, um, and has kind of come down to us in a very poor state biographically as a result. Um, there was the most delightful manuscript written in the 1890s when Reid was, was still Premier of New South Wales, uh, obviously by a friendly journalist, um, much of it, you know, handwritten in beautiful script. And it's the first attempt I can find of, uh, for, an, for someone who became an Australian Prime Minister of someone trying to write a biography that could actually build their political capital. Now, it was never published. It's anonymous. I couldn't work out who it was. Mm -hmm. Through quite a lot of sleuthing, I worked out it must have been a probably a press gallery journalist in the late 19th century New South Wales Parliament. But it's really touching. And, you know, Reid has been produced by history and needs uh, reworking. But it was, you know, 100 years later that he eventually got a biography long after his death and, and not during his political life. The other poignant things I found were unpublished manuscripts by journalists 
like Alfred Buchanan and Mm -hmm. Herbert Campbell-Jones, who were actually really concerned about the loss of Australia's contemporary political history from that time. Uh, They were reporters in the press gallery when Parliament first sat in Melbourne, as it did for the first quarter of of a century, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. And Herbert Campbell-Jones and Alfred Buchanan both wrote, wrote some beautiful collective pen portraits of those early prime ministers, uh, many of whom they knew personally because they'd reported on them and travelled with them, as well as some of the senior cabinet figures. Again, never published, languishing in the manuscripts collection of the National Library. And, you know, given this huge blank in our national consciousness, um, you'd think it would be nice if the NLA got around to retrospectively publishing a few well, of these things. It's funny you say that, Chris, because my note on that section is in all caps, why not publish now, five question marks? Yes. And that was about the Buchanan manuscript because you point out that they actually had the chance to do that, to actually publish it in 1973. And the National Librarian Fleming said, though it's very well written, it may be outdated by the Lenore study Um, which was a two-volume biography of Alfred Deakin. But as you point out, they don't consider the fact that there are 10 other prime ministers covered in that manuscript that we don't really know much about uh, that they could still publish. So, you know, the fact that it's still there, sitting there, that you've, you've had the great opportunity of reading it, but how many people go along to the manuscripts collection at the National Library in their limited hours and, you know, read a whole unpublished manuscripts like do you think that there is an appetite potentially now with the publication of your book to do that well I think you make a very strong argument for that Amy and I 100% agree and I'm just jotting down a note now right to NLA please Director General Marie-Louise Ayres and say how about it because the NLA does have a a quite a good publishing program but of course Amy as we were discussing off air the National Cultural Institutions of Australia are in dire budgetary circumstances. Uh, We're all hanging off the edge of our seats to see if the federal budget in May does include a proper rebasing of the funding for the national cultural institutions, and I'm talking about National Library, National Gallery of Australia, National Archives of Australia, National Museum of Australia. Let us not forget the National Screen and Sound Archives. They're all on the bare bones of their arse, Mm -hmm. and um, so probably I'm going to have to make the case for increased funding if I can simultaneously persuade the NLA to to publish those manuscripts, which, you know, Australian political culture really needs a dose of. Well, I think it does. I think it also would help people learning about Australian history as well because uh, it's not necessarily the most popular subject at uni or in high school, even though it should be because uh, there's a lot of really important moments in Australian history that are missed. Um, Chris, I wanted to talk about some of these kind of better known figures that you jump into now that we've mentioned some of the the others, um, the ones that no one will remember for trivia, but hopefully one day we will. And one of those characters who I've always remembered from my studies at university is Billy Hughes. Um, his name is William Morris Hughes, technically, but he started out as a Labor politician and then became a nationalist. There was a huge split. There was a lot of drama and chaos uh, around him and he was 
especially a big personality with a very raspy voice, but also a very small stature. So he was quite curious looking and curious sounding, but there seems to be quite a lot of mythology around William uh, Morris Hughes. And I wonder if you could take us through how his biographies or biographers either played into that or didn't. Very interesting character, Billy Hughes, as you say, started off Labor, ended up being conservative in very dramatic circumstances during World War I um, and became one of Australia's longest-serving politicians. For God's sake, he, he was still there in the early Menzies era, second time round, at a, a very, very ancient age. Um, his first public speaking success came at, at a nice Stepford in Sydney in 1890, where he won the prize for an impromptu speech on the topic, Myself, <laughs> a performance some would argue did not end during his lifetime. I mean, this guy was the ultimate... Narcissist. Uh, well, yes, but a, an incredibly skilled crafter mm. of image, uh, well ahead of his time. And very interestingly, of, of course, he was an Australian of Welsh heritage and he was Prime Minister of Australia at a time when in Britain... There was also a Prime Minister of Welsh Heritage, David Lloyd George, and these two kind of hit it off like, you know, a match and some dry tinder during World War One. And David Lloyd George had, in fact, Billy Hughes' talent for self-promotion and, and you know, the self-crafting of image to the point where he actually had – there was a feature film made of him, can you believe it, dramatising his life while he was Prime Minister. Really? Yeah, which I discovered in my research. It's it's quite amazing. Um, so these two Welsh-infused prime ministers, one British, one Australian, found themselves in this unique historical moment. And, in fact, you know, one of the notable things about Australian political biography in the first half of the 20th century is pretty much, Amy, there was none mm. um, until Billy Hughes, who had two biographies written of him during World War One but not for Australian consumption, for British consumption. Uh, Keith Murdoch had a hand in one happening. Uh, the other one had nothing to do with Murdoch. But they were both written by British writers and published in Britain in order to use Hughes's kind of incendiary pro-World War I arguments and rhetoric to try and rev up uh, flagging British morale for the war in Britain Mm. Well, he was also pro-conscription at home as well. Exactly. He was a complete hawk. And very interesting that these, you know, effectively the first Australian prime ministerial biographies were written by Poms, published in England for propaganda purposes in England. Mm. Now, there were, there, was, there were two later biographies of uh, Billy Hughes and, and their stories unto themselves. But to the extent he was a, a character who knew how to create and project an image and did it over and over and over again. He really anticipated the kind of techniques that are standard now but took a long, long time, many decades, uh, before they took off generally. Yeah, yeah. And I was, you know, interested in the fact that there's this kind of British tradition that must, I guess, seep in eventually into Australian tradition or maybe we did you know, have our own traditions. But one thing that was quite interesting was the involvement of the scholar journalist, you know, someone who 
has not just a journalistic background, as you describe. There are some who are just solely journalists who become biographers of politicians, but then there are others who have, I guess, a a different educational background, but are also a journalist. And you talk about this kind of type uh, that does the political biography. Could you talk to us about that and how that type has presented itself across the time span that you're looking at? Yes, we've been really reliant on journalists to actually produce political biographies. Um, One of the things about the scarcity of political biography in Australia in the first half of the 20th century is we didn't have an Australian publishing industry, book publishing industry in effect. So that that made it difficult. You had those pen sketches being done by people like Alfred Buchanan and uh, Campbell Jones and so forth that didn't get published. But by the time things started happening uh, from pretty much World War II on, you see journalists again and again and again being the ones who write their biographies, even when it doesn't seem to be the case. So take the famous Robert J. Hawke biography by Blanche Del Puget that was published in late 1982. Uh, She, of course, was a very highly regarded non-fiction writer. She'd written a great biography of of, uh, Sir Richard Kirby, the president of the Arbitration Commission. She'd written a couple of stunningly successful novels, which were, again, critically received in the most positive manner. And she turned to the Hawke biography, was a brilliant success. People thought of her as a writer rather than a journalist. But in fact, uh, she was a cadet journalist at the time. You know, Laurie Oakes was running around working as a young tabloid journalist himself. Um, So time and time again, when you see one of these biographers, they're either a, a serving reporter at the time or have journalistic origins. And if it wasn't for these people, a lot of contemporary Australian history wouldn't have been captured. Uh, We're really reliant on their literal first draft of history reporting generally. But when they kind of step up and attempt long-form writing in the form of political biography of these people who aspired to or became prime ministers, they were doing vital service for the nation in actually capturing what was going on in real time Uh, not just leaving it to the biographers who come later, you know, when a politician's left the business or when they've died and when biographers can get access to papers. Uh, These journalists tended to often have a university degree at a time when journalists didn't. Uh, They tended to to think a bit more deeply about what was going on and and really some very good books were written by them in in a way that I'm, I'm not sure we've thanked the journalistic profession enough for. No. Well, not everyone talks about thanking journalists, do they? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) As you would know, Chris. Well, Paul Keating, interestingly, said when I interviewed him for the book, because, Amy, in relation to living prime ministers and living biographers, I interviewed both sides, both both the Mm. subjects and the biographers, to try and understand that dynamic better. Uh, And Paul Keating, of course, was one of the people I interviewed. And he had this great term, he he called them snapshots in time. You know, if if those journalists, those scholar journalist biographers hadn't caught those snapshots in time, so much would get lost as, you know, time compresses history, conflates everything, as later writers come to rely overly on the written record. Um, I, I think Keating's got a real point there. Yeah, well, I do recall your reference to Keating uh, when he talked about, what was it? Um, He was referencing a book about James Scullin called Caucus Crisis, which has been republished a few times 
the last time in 2000 by Black Ink. And I think Keating was saying that to a, a gallery journalist that they should write a book like Caucus Crisis uh, instead of talking about the history of um, a just defeated government. So he seems to have quite an opinion on what constitutes perhaps a good biography of a prime minister. Did he, you know, give his own insight as to, you know, his thoughts on his own? Well, I think Paul Keating is, you know, of all our prime ministers, probably the most historical, historically minded, mm. the best historically informed and most mindful of his own uh, position in posterity, should we put it that way? I think he's 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 been adopting an interesting posture. Some things have been written about him so far, but I think he's waiting for the big Richard Elman level biographer to really come mm. and and do a big job as part of a broader picture about the, the Keating government. Uh, this is the exciting thing about being in political history. You know, all of these things are yet to be written. The Keating government, of course, it's, it's decades ago now, but still relatively contemporary history. But whoever gets to write the magisterial uh, Keating biography and his, history of the Keating government uh, is going to get access to a fantastic store of archival material that uh, Paul Keating has been collecting since I think he went into the business. What an archive to mm. dream of. In contrast, Amy, to people like our first Prime Minister, Edmund Barton, uh, he and his wife went out of their way to mostly destroy their key papers uh, to stop anyone, any future biographer, getting insights they didn't That's think right. they were entitled to. And who was the one who left their spare teeth in the documents? That was Billy Hughes, of Billy course. Billy Hughes, yeah, that that's was a special. Right. Yep. That beware archivists, beware the dentures in the archival boxes. There's always yeah. a surprise or two. But Here I thought it was just mould and, you know, the usual biohazards. Yeah, dentures, great. That's funny. Mm. It does remind me also about that close connection between speechwriters and prime ministers because speechwriters also have had a role in biography. Um, one example is obviously with Gough Whitlam and his press secretary and I would, I guess you could say speechwriter Graham Freudenberg um, because he clearly had a very close relationship with Gough already, uh, you know, around the fact that he basically had the ability to say, um, you know, this is what Gough says, you know, to a journalist and then Gough reads the newspaper and says, oh, did I give that quote? Um, you know, so it seems like he was almost his mouthpiece in a way. And Gough Whitlam had his own biographers, including Laurie Oakes, uh, but also that press secretary. That's right. Uh, the Whitlam, a lot, of, a lot of people are telling me that the Hawke chapter is their favourite, but many others are telling me the Whitlam chapter is their favourite. Yeah. And the, the quartet of books that Laurie Oakes wrote or co-wrote, uh, I think there were two sole-authored ones and, and two that he co-authored on Whitlam and the Whitlam government while it was all happening are just extraordinary uh, documents. Some some people called him Whitlam's Boswell, but Laurie always said that it was really Graham Freudenberg who was so close, as you say, to Gough as his speechwriter and, and kind of textual alter ego that, you know, together if you read Freudenberg and you read Oakes, I'm not sure you'd get a better, deeper picture of an Australian Prime Minister ever. I mean, it's an extraordinary collection of, of works. And Whitlam, of course, such an incredible subject. Oh, 
Absolutely. I, and a yeah. mystery. And a mystery at his own mm. in his own time to people. And this was, you know, this is very much the scholar journalist approach. You can see Laurie Oakes going, I've got to work this bloke out and setting out to do it with a considerable degree of sophistication and luckily for us, great accuracy and plentiful detail and, and psychological insight. Um, they're really great books. Yeah, I, I, it, reading this, it made me want to revisit it all because uh, Whitlam certainly has always been enigmatic for me, um, given that I wasn't around when he was prime minister, but, you know, you hear about it all the time and his legacy lives on. Just like so many of these other politicians, including Bob Hawke, as you say, um, you know, Judith Brett highlighted the Hawke chapter as a, a favourite, and I'm not that surprised either because she herself has been a practitioner of, I guess you could say, psychoanalytic biography. So is it any wonder she would appreciate a chapter which basically draws that in and talks about the role of psychoanalysis in political biographies? And I just wondered if we could close out the conversation talking about that approach, that methodology, and you say that it's quite controversial um, or has been historically. You know, how has psychoanalysis been used, and especially in this case study of uh, Bob Hawke and Blanche Dalpuget? Well, it's one of the big conclusions for me from this research exercise is that we had this historical moment when finally these scholar journalists got confident enough and were knowledgeable and educated enough to actually be brave enough to undertake a psychoanalytic approach or a psychological approach more broadly uh, to their subjects because, you know, biographies that are just they were born at X, they went to Y school, they then did this, they then did that. You know, that kind of superficiality is useless to us as, as citizens. Uh, we need deep insight based on real knowledge and of knowledge much wider than that pertaining only to the subject themselves. So Blanche Del Puget had got to know a number of people in the Melbourne psychosocial group, of which, in fact, Judith Brett was also a member. And these were uh, a group of people built around a couple of core members, Fu Davies uh, and Graham Little were two Melbourne University academics that were kind of core members of this, promoting this psychological approach to political analysis and political biography. And Blanche Dolbuche was totally signed up for this. And she describes herself for Hawke book as, you know, a psychoanalysis wrapped in a narrative. So when you read it back then at the end of 1982, you had no idea that's what you were reading. It's kind of the, the chassis of the book is this psychoanalytic uh, analysis of Hawke, which is truly fascinating. And as I kind of explain in the book through Blanche's own, own story, uh, actually during the researching of the book and the interviews for the book actually helped reshaped, reshape Hawke's own conception of himself and play the key role in him giving up drinking and going on to become prime minister. Mm. It's absolutely extraordinary. But what subsequently happened is uh, a writer called Stan Anson, drawing heavily on Blanche Del Puget's biography of Hawke, then did a very hostile psychoanalytic analysis of Hawke and the controversy and the legal action that resulted uh, did terrible damage to the writing of psychobiography in Australia. And, and while, as Judith Brett says in her Inside Story piece, uh, that kind of analysis didn't come to a full stop when it came to politics generally, it did pretty much end in biography. So, you know, those 
Keating biographies, the Howard biographies, uh, you just don't get that kind of psychological richness, depth, insight and bravery that you got uh, when that approach reached its high tide in Australia under Blanche Dale Puget's mm. magnificent work. And Blanche had certainly a special position as well, having such, you know, personal access to Bob and his life and, you know, the people around him like Hazel as well, you know, talking about or hearing that story about Bob's mother from Hazel and the mother being so fierce, uh, you know, and Bob getting that from him. Like it, it certainly was so fascinating to hear all those little tidbits of how it all came about and how Blanche's, um, you know, relationship with Bob influence that and when you read that chapter it really comes through how Blanche far from being captured by Hawk mm. was really working Hawk over you know she was mm. not letting him escape confronting and dealing with the implications of the stories from his childhood that she got from pursuing in very fine detail members of the family far-flung members of the family to really find out what happened in Hawke's childhood. It is gripping stuff, Amy. It really is impressive. Yeah. Uh, for anyone out there who's interested in writing biography, um, I've got to say the the Hawke chapter in my book is so worth reading for uh, an escalating sense of what's possible um, if you really go the hard path, go the, yeah. the difficult path and don't just do the once over lightly path. No, absolutely. And, I mean, we've literally skipped over a million things I've li- underlined that I also absolutely loved and adored that you brought up and, and analysed in this work, Chris. It's every page has something really unique to offer, which is why there's no way I can do it justice today. But I hope that we've given everyone listening an idea just a little idea of just how amazing and rich this book is Chris uh and also how thorough it is as I was saying off air with you to the point where you're literally quoting in the text the manuscript box numbers and where typos have happened in other people's things and how that sent people off on the wrong path I absolutely just loved it um and anyone who appreciates accuracy insight and analysis will love it too so i'm just so grateful to you for writing it kind words thank you amy i bet you've got a good couple of biographies in you down the track i i actually do i I was asked to do some because i wrote a, a lecture about two great women politicians so i feel like it's there but i don't know when i'm going to get the time but Bring it, it's, Bring it it's on. It's there. It's ready. I know. I'm inspired now by you and your amazing work. So thank you so much, Chris, for coming onto the show again. And I know we're going to catch up again soon. Oh, and I should also just mention, um, because it seems that it hasn't had much coverage, that um, I wanted to mark the moment because Richard Wilcott uh, passed away recently at the age of 95, and he was quite a significant uh, diplomat and public servant um, an Australian history in certainly DFAT and uh, was an ambassador to many nations. So uh, I think that was an important thing to mark. And I know you're probably familiar with Richard's work as well. Well, Dick Wolcott really was a great DFAT officer, but he also had a terrific art collection. I remember going to the ah. opening of a wing he built onto his house for his art collection. That's that's not many people can boast that, particularly no. public servants. Very good ambassador to Indonesia and former DFAT secretary, yeah, Vale yeah. Dick Walcott. Absolutely. 
Thank you so much, Chris, today. And uh, I hope people can pick up your book. It's called Political Lives, Australian Prime Ministers and Their Biographers, and it's out through New South Publishing. Thanks so much, Chris. Cheers. I've just been chatting with Professor Chris Wallace, and as I said, we've been talking about her fantastic new book, which examines in absolute detail those relationships between Australia's Prime Ministers and their biographers. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.